want you to, to grab those Bibles that are in the pew or the Bible that you brought with you. I'll tell you where to go in just a second. We're still in the afterglow of Easter. Spring is in the air. The weather is fantastic. We, we're feeling that change in, the, in not only the, the daylight, but just in life all around us. We've just celebrated a few weeks ago the crescendo of the gospel, the good news of the God who not only comes to be with us in the flesh, to teach us how to live as his children, but who, through Jesus, offers his life for the sins of all the world, who is crucified in Christ and yet rises in victory from death. All of this, we believe, we profess, changes things. We believe it changes everything. That's why we're here. But how? How does it change everything? What does life look like when you come back from the dead? How do our relationships change in the aftermath of resurrection? Last week, we began to explore these questions through a very short yet intensely personal letter in the New Testament, Philemon. And if you're not familiar with this letter, it's right between Titus and Hebrews if you want to open it up, and if you go too quick, quick you'll miss it. This is a letter where Paul addresses Philemon, a man he brought to faith in Christ. He addresses Philemon about a mutual friend and believer named Onesimus. These two men, Philemon and Onesimus, have had a falling out, and Paul is trying to help them reconcile. Now, if you're familiar at all with this letter, and you will be very quickly when we start to read it, my purpose is not to wrestle with, which, with the context in which this falling out occurs. Specifically, what you need to know is Onesimus is a slave who has run away from his master, Philemon. While we must acknowledge that human slavery, in whatever form it takes, is contrary to the vision of the kingdom of God, our focus during this series is to consider the viewpoint of each of the three main people involved in this situation. Onesimus, Philemon, and Paul. And we're doing this, looking at it from each of their perspectives, in order to reflect on how the gospel, how the cross and the resurrection shape and transform our engagement with each other. Last week, if you were with us, we looked at things from the perspective of Onesimus, if you will, the offender. Together we learned that when we've come back from the dead, thanks to Jesus, it changes all of our relationships for the better. And that difference should be noticeable to other people. I won't ask for a show of hands for how many of you actually did what I asked you to do, which is to ask at least one person if they see that change, if they see Jesus changing you. Along with that, we also learned last week that since in Christ we no longer have to be afraid of death, we shouldn't be afraid to face and reconcile our past. And again, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I hope that you took at least one piece of your past and with Jesus allowed him to start to reconcile that for you. And if you didn't do it or you weren't here, you can listen to the sermon if you, or if you were here and you still do There's no statute of limitations on this invitation on what we're invited into here. But today we consider the viewpoint of Philemon, the offended party. If you have those Bibles open, it's page 837. We're not going to read the whole letter as short as it is. We're going to start in verse 4. I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, I always thank my God as I hear about you in my prayers, as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. 
Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to have kept him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, we look at this letter from the perspective of Philemon. And you clearly caught that Philemon was the guy on the receiving end of this letter. He lived in a city called Colossae, Colossae modern-day Turkey. He was a merchant of some kind. And his business travels apparently took him, at least on one occasion, to Ephesus. And through the providence of God, and if you were with us last week, we saw the providence of God at work in Onesimus' life. Through the providence of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, Philemon encounters the Apostle Paul who led him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, as we heard. And, and as you can also read between the lines in this letter, this forever changed Philemon. He was forever changed by his encounter with Jesus. He returned home and shares the gospel with his whole household. His faith becomes their faith. More than this, from what Paul describes in this letter, Philemon freely and generously gives to others from his resources. The change in his life, as we talked about last week, is visible. It's apparent to others. Philemon opens his home to others who come to share his faith in Christ. And this also tells us that Philemon was clearly a man of some means to have an estate large enough to have a house church. Because back, in then, back then, a house church had about 30 to 50 people in it on a regular basis. Philemon has been changed Jesus often said, and, and Paul will repeat the words of Christ several times in other letters, that the mark of a true follower of Christ, a true follower of Jesus, is to how well we love others. When we love others the way Christ loves us. And you caught it where we started this morning. Paul begins this letter by appealing to this obvious, visible trait in Philemon. Not only his notable faith in Jesus, but if you caught it, more significantly, his Christ-like character expressed through his love for all of God's people. Paul starts here by pointing out what is visible to all, by commending Philemon, because his reason for writing involves a situation that is going to test Philemon's faith and character. And again, let's repeat, Onesimus is a slave 
who ran away from Philemon. One moment he was there, faithfully serving his master, and then the next moment Onesimus was gone, trying to get as far away from Philemon as possible. And this is a problem, this is a great wrong on many levels. First of all, Onesimus' action was illegal. Under Roman law, it was punishable by a severe beating, the visible brand of fugitivists scorched onto his forehead for life, or at the very worst, being put to death. Onesimus' action was not just illegal, Onesimus' action was also costly. Without one of his servants, in the absence of Onesimus' labor, Philemon incurred a financial loss, as well as a decline in the overall productivity of his household. But it wasn't just that it was illegal, it wasn't just that it was costly, Onesimus' action was also publicly embarrassing for Philemon. In the eyes of the community, Philemon appeared weak and ineffective, the kind of man who couldn't keep his house in order. Added to this, Philemon was seen as stirring up trouble for everyone else because after all, if one slave is able to successfully run away, what's to stop the rest of the servants from getting the same idea? It's important we, we sit in this because it's against this backdrop that Paul writes to Philemon. It is with this prior history that Philemon, picture this if you will, Philemon comes face to face with Onesimus holding this letter in his hand. He left as a slave and a sinner, but now he returns as a saint and a disciple of Christ. He is free in the economy of God's kingdom, but in the eyes of the law, Onesimus, who stands before Philemon, is a fugitive. Philemon has the law on his side should he desire to retaliate against Onesimus' disobedience. He's legally justified to even go so far as to take his life. But as we heard, Paul appeals to Philemon to show mercy, to extend forgiveness. He even, did you catch it? Paul even possibly hints at releasing Onesimus as a slave. Can you imagine, can we imagine for a moment how Philemon's emotions must have been stirred as he read this letter? As he read this letter with the very person he's estranged from right in front of him. The man who wronged you. The servant who broke the law when he ran out on you. The person who basically stole from you when he left his post and cost you income. The member of your household who publicly shamed you by making you look foolish and out of control. This man suddenly shows up on your doorstep and wants forgiveness. A clean slate. Let bygones be bygones. This guy finds God. He finds God, he suddenly turns to Jesus and starts serving the kingdom and Philemon is just supposed to act like everything is okay? What would you do? What would you do? What would you want to do if you were Philemon? Or maybe the more pressing question today is you are Philemon and what are you going to do? Do you have an Onesimus in your life? Someone who has wronged you? Someone you're estranged from? Someone who you are not reconciled with? The power of memory is telling, I think. I mean, I, I particularly find interesting what we remember versus what we don't. And when I say that, I'm not talking about the effects of aging. <laughs> For those of you who catch my drift, I'm just talking in general 
I'm fascinated by what we tend to remember in general versus what we don't. And, and what I find particularly interesting is our ability to recall negative experiences often trumps positive ones, right? I mean, how many of us can remember what we were doing on a specific date a month ago without looking at your phone? And yet we can't remember what we were doing on a specific date a month ago, and yet how many of us remember well the day when we were punished for something we did not do? even if it was years ago. That's fantastic. Guy in the front's like, I remember, yes. I can talk to your parents about this later if you want to. That's fantastic. We can have no recollection. We can, think about this. In the friendships we have, if we're married, our spouse, we have no recollection of all the times our spouse or a friend helped us with an everyday task. I mean, we just, we, we're appreciative, but we don't recall that. But we never forget, do we? When our spouse or our friend ridicules or lets us down in front of other people. That presentation that you made in class, if you're a student here today, that presentation you made at work about a week ago, you, a few weeks back, it's long gone up here, right? But every harsh or insensitive word from your teacher or your employer is still as fresh as if it was yesterday. So, again, perhaps this morning you find yourself with someone in your life who has wronged you. Is there someone, maybe more than one person, who has deeply offended you? How long has it been? Does it still feel like yesterday? Maybe it was yesterday. This person has done something perhaps illegal that hurt you. This person may have caused you to incur a financial or material loss. This person may have publicly ridiculed or shamed you or let you down. Are you here today nursing a wound that cuts so deep, one that hurts so badly, you just can't find the strength to reconcile with this person? You still hold a grudge. Perhaps you've even entertained thoughts of getting them back. Maybe you're not even sure if you want to be reconciled with this person. Beloved, if that's you, if this is any of us, Paul isn't just writing to Philemon today. He's speaking to you and to me. We live in a world where when we're not the offended party, we like to tell each other, forgive and forget, right? Forgive and forget is an often encouraged but rarely practiced recommendation. We tend to be much more mindful in recalling old injustices, dredging up insignificant slights, reopening old wounds, and holding on to past hurts. And yet, we just came out of a, a time in God's Word during Lent, our last sermon series, where we learned and we remember that Jesus teaches us to forgive as we have been forgiven, to pray to forgive as we have been forgiven. And Philemon, do you think about it as a disciple of Christ? He learned that prayer. Paul probably taught him that prayer. Philemon knows that prayer. He's certainly aware of the call to forgiveness. And he's aware of it not just from the prayer Jesus taught us to pray and not just even from this letter, but he's also aware of the call to forgiveness from a letter to the church that was meeting in his house that Paul probably wrote the same time he wrote this one. And it's a letter we still have, by the way. It's the letter to the Colossians. And in that letter, Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 13, he commands it. He says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. You think Philemon thought those words were just for him? 
They're not. Forgive as the Lord forgave you is the call to every follower of Jesus. It's the call to every follower of Jesus, and yet we're so confused, aren't we? We're so confused about what forgiveness means, we rarely use the word anymore. Instead, we think saying sorry when we've done something wrong, we think saying sorry when we feel bad is enough. I was a kid, I, I went through a streak, and I'm not very proud to tell you this, where when I would get into an argument with my dad, which was quite a lot, that in, when in, the, in the thick of battle, I would say, I hate you. And it was sort of a regular go-to phrase because it cut my dad to the quick. I would say, I hate you. And it always shut my dad down. It always made me feel powerful until one day my dad said, and I'll never forget it, you keep saying that and you think that it doesn't mean anything. I'm always going to be your dad, but if you keep talking to me like that, treating me like this, we don't have to be friends. It cut me to the quick. It cut me to the quick. And I would always say when he would call me, sorry, and he said, sorry. Sorry is just a word. Forgiveness is so much more than sorry, beloved. Forgiveness at its core is a gospel issue. Because just as the Lord forgave us of everything, the very things that cost him his life, we are called to forgive others who wrong us, not just say sorry. Indeed, if you, ever, if you stop and think about it, without the gospel, there is no forgiveness. Without the gospel, all we have is sorry. But thanks to Jesus, we have been reconciled to God, and through Christ, we must, we can be reconciled to each other. Okay, so if we don't fully understand it, what is forgiveness? Briefly, let me review it for you. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but forgiveness means to release or set free from the penalty and guilt of the offense. Forgiveness, once again, is not ignoring or overlooking a wrong that's been done to us. Forgiveness doesn't lessen the severity of the offense. It hurts. Forgiveness doesn't negate the experience, experiencing the consequences of our actions. As the image I gave you is forgiveness is pulling the nails out of the board, but doesn't remove the holes. Forgiveness doesn't forget the offense. Forgiveness doesn't forget the offense. We can't forget. We shouldn't forget. But here's the thing. Biblically, forgiveness is choosing not to remember. It's a choice not to bring up the wrong done to us for malicious intent. It's a promise not to hold what's been done against us over the head of the other person. I still come back to the definition I gave you a couple of weeks back. It's simple, but to me it's very profound. Forgiveness is giving up my right to hurt you for hurting me. Forgiveness is my giving up my right to hurt you for hurting me. Okay, but how do we practice forgiveness? I think there are a couple of things we can glean from Philemon's situation, from what Paul writes here. And here's the first. How can we practice forgiveness first? Forgiveness begins by changing our thinking. Paul encourages Philemon, did you catch this, to change the way he thinks about Onesimus. First, Paul asks Philemon to see Onesimus not as useless, but as useful. Paul invites Philemon to perceive Onesimus in light of how the Lord is working in his life. Maybe he was apart from you for a little while so that this could happen, Paul writes. In other words, what Paul is doing is asking Philemon, rather than focus on the wrong that Onesimus has done, 
choose to reflect on how Jesus found and rescued one who was lost and made him better than he was before. Better, useful, not useless. Not a slave, a brother in Christ. Beloved, forgiveness begins when we let Jesus confront how we think about the other person. That is because how we think correlates with what we feel. And oftentimes in the midst of the wounds we carry, the scars we bear, we don't feel like forgiving the other person, right? We don't feel like it. And that's why the first step towards forgiveness is asking God to begin to change the way we think about the other person. And you see, it's in this humble act of submission where the Holy Spirit, the first thing the Holy Spirit does when we start here is the Holy Spirit will prompt us to release our anger and our hurt because of that person. Now, many of us haven't gotten past this first step for a very, very simple reason. Because there is tremendous power in not forgiving another person. There is tremendous power in not forgiving another person. There's tremendous power in holding something over someone's head. There is tremendous power to have something over the other person. The guilt and shame card that we can play anytime we want. Even if the other person doesn't even acknowledge they're wrong, there's still power in knowing we are right and they are wrong. But beloved, Righteousness rooted in resentment rather than faith quickly turns sour. It turns ugly. It turns into superiority over another person. There is tremendous power in not forgiving another person, but it is an exercise of power that is not good. Not good for them, not good for us. It is an exercise of power that is not good because it is not of God. Because you see, it doesn't take long when we hold on to that kind of power. It doesn't take long for what remains unhealed in us to turn septic. As feelings of anger become cancers of bitterness, rage, and eventually contempt. And these cancers of bitterness, rage, and contempt, they don't just affect the other person, the object of our ire. They infect everyone around us, including ourselves. We may not feel like forgiving, but when we allow God to change our thinking, it'll feel good to let go of all that baggage. Allowing the Holy Spirit to change how we think is letting go of all that baggage we've been holding on to and suddenly feeling lighter, feeling free. Letting go of the baggage of the past enables us to have a new perception of that person in the present. It doesn't change what happened. It doesn't excuse what took place, make it right, but it allows us to be able to see how God has been working through those circumstances and through that person. Think about how significant, it seems so simple, but how significant for Philemon to go from calling Onesimus useless and instead calling him useful. To call Onesimus useless is to disregard him, to make him into a villain. But to suddenly call him useful is to see him as a person. And again, if you were with us last week, you know there's a little bit of wordplay going on because Onesimus' name, which means useful, is a name that Philemon as his master probably gave him, which is why Paul says, stop seeing him as useless, but see him as what you named him, as who he is in Christ, useful. Beloved, have you ever looked back at someone? Have you ever looked back at a situation with a different pair of eyes? 
with God's eyes? There's a scripture. It's one of my favorites, quotes from the story of the Bible. And it goes like this. What you intended for evil, God used for good. Remember who said it? Joseph. And if that guy had an ax to grind, let me tell you. Here's a guy who had an ax to grind, right? Here's a guy who, and, and you remember this scene when he finally comes across his brothers? He has to leave the room and he weeps so loudly all of Egypt can hear him. And you talk about power, the power of not forgiving someone. Joseph had that and then he had the power of all Egypt behind him. And yet he in that moment, he allowed God to change his thinking. It didn't change what had happened. What you did, you intended for evil, but God had used it for good. Joseph had to let go of his baggage to see that. Can you imagine what happens in that story if Joseph doesn't? Beloved, a shift in our perception, first how we think, then how we feel, opens us up to another step of forgiveness as outlined by Paul here. And that other step, that next step is accepting the person. First we allow the Holy Spirit to change the way we think about that person, and then we allow the Holy Spirit to enable us to accept that person. Paul writes, if you have it open there, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. When Paul writes, welcome him, Onesimus, as, if, as you would welcome me, he means it. The word welcome that Paul uses here means to accept as part of one's home or circle of influence. Paul is saying, treat Onesimus, talk with him, work with him, serve with him, partner with him as if you were interacting with me. And once again, Paul is quoting Jesus here, right? He's quoting Jesus because Jesus says, that how we, how we treat each other, we should treat each other as if we are engaging him. Every person we encounter, we should engage as if we were engaging Christ. And that's all that Paul's mirroring here is. Engage each person like Jesus. Beloved, when we look in the face of someone who's wronged us, when we look in the face of someone who's coming to ask you to forgive them, are we willing to see Jesus in that person? To accept that person like Christ? For me, on my own, I got an easy answer for you. No. No. And that's why prayer is so foundational because when I pray for the Holy Spirit to change the way I think about that person, when I pray for the Holy Spirit to enable me to accept the other person, what starts to happen despite my feelings, despite what I'm holding on to, is I begin to see that person who's wronged me as a child of God like me. Not any worse, not any better, but just as broken, just as needy, and just as forgiven by God as I am. None of this excuses what they did, but it broadens our view of their struggles, their hurts, their blind spots, their weaknesses. As we start to perceive the other person through our Father's eyes, we will recognize the distance between ourselves and that person is not as deep and wide as we have led ourselves to believe. We have faults. We have flaws. We have sins to confess too. We need a Savior just as much as they do. And what we also begin to realize is every wrong we do unto others is like every wrong done unto us. What do I mean by that? Every wrong we do unto others is like every wrong done unto us. Where they're the same is every wrong done unto others and every wrong done unto us is the same in that they're all a greater offense against our Heavenly Father. 
It's not like God discriminates and says, you know, I get a lot more ticked off about the stuff that gets done unto you more than I do about the stuff you do unto other people. It equally offends God. It's equally not what God wants for his creation. And yet if we acknowledge that, if we don't make them different, if we acknowledge they're the same and we confront the cross that God forgives all sins, who are we to withhold our forgiveness? Learning to accept others, to welcome back those who have wronged us, to receive them regardless of what they have done, happens when we realize forgiveness is not primarily an act of generosity towards someone who has hurt us. Forgiveness is not primarily an act of generosity towards someone who has hurt us as much as it is an act of gratitude toward the God in Christ who accepted us while we were still sinners. And that brings us to the final observation I think we can get from Paul's letter here, Philemon's life. The final, perhaps, step of forgiveness we can see here is restoring that person to the family. It's enabling the Holy Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to change the way we think about that person. It's accepting that person for who they are. But the final step is, in, is being empowered by the Holy Spirit to restore that person to the family. Paul writes, he urges Philemon, do not miss this. He urges Philemon to view Onesimus no longer as a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear brother, as both a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord, Paul appeals to Philemon to accept Onesimus back into the family. And let's be clear here. I don't think that what Paul is writing, what Paul intends, Paul's idea here is not, he's not seeking for Philemon to restore Onesimus back to their prior relationship. The family he once left as a slave under his master in the house of Philemon. No, I think Paul's going much bigger. Paul is looking for, for Philemon to embrace Onesimus as part of the family of God, as a dear brother in the work of the kingdom of heaven. My friends, our forgiveness of another person is complete when we don't treat that person as a stranger or as an enemy, but instead embrace them like family. And, and, and you can always tell when we're not willing to take that final step. You can always tell when we're not willing to restore the relationship. Because you know how you can tell? Because what we do is we don't engage or open ourselves up to that, that person with the same level of intimacy. When we don't want to restore that person into the family of God, we maintain our distance from them through silence. Avoidance. They're coming. We go the other way. Superficiality. Okay, fine. I'll talk to you, but I'm not really going to talk to you about anything. I'm just going to stay on the surface. But if we allow the Holy Spirit to continue to shape how we think, we will eventually, and again, this is shocking, if you allow the Holy Spirit to do this work in you, we will eventually find ourselves not only accepting that person, but seeking the blessing of that person who once wronged us. The blessing of that person. <laughs> Why? Would that be the end goal? Why? I mean, isn't it enough that I can just tolerate the person? Why would the end goal be that I would seek the blessing of that person? Here's why. Because the work of the Holy Spirit, which is what we're invoking here, the work of the Holy Spirit, as Paul writes elsewhere in multiple letters, the work of the Holy Spirit is to give us the mind of Christ. And thinking like Jesus means, like, means acting like Jesus commanded. And what did Jesus tell us to do? To love 
our enemies. And here's the, here's the beautiful thing about that statement, that command, love your enemies. Because here's the thing, when we love, when we pray for the blessing of another person, that person is no longer our enemy. That's why we don't want to love them. That's why we don't want to bless them. Because if we do that, they're no longer our enemy. That's why we hold on to it. I'm not going to give my love. I'm not going to give a blessing. Because if I do, I recognize we've crossed the line now. You're not an enemy anymore. If I love somebody, if I bless them, they've become my sibling. They've become my family. They've become my brother or sister in Christ. And we, no longer, we, can't, we can't hold a grudge anymore. You can't hold a grudge and bless a person at the same time. You gotta let go of your resentment. You can't pour out love while you're holding on to resentment. You gotta refuse to retaliate. You gotta take all those, those plans you had to get a little payback, you gotta burn them. Because blessing has nothing to do with payback. We have to accept them as they are. And when we accept people as they are, not excusing what they do, but accepting them as they are, as we are in Christ, we embrace them as family, beloved and forgiven in Christ like us. You know, a lot of times when we read the Bible, it gets complicated. A lot of stuff going on, heavy theological stuff. What we have right in front of us here, two men of different social classes, right? One man has been wronged. One man is guilty. Two men united, however, in faith in Jesus. Both are equally sinners before God. Both have been mutually redeemed through Christ. That's not complicated. That's a picture of everyday life for you and me. That's a picture of your relationships and mine right now. What happens next, right? What happens next? Did you notice that what happens next is Philemon's call to make? Do you see that? Do you have the Bible still open? It's Philemon's call to make. Paul makes this clear. you got to love Paul. Paul kind of... Th- kind of intimidates a little bit. You know, I could force you to do this. You know, you pretty much owe me everything. We'll talk about Paul next week. But Paul continues to maintain that even though he could force the issue, Philemon's choice matters. It's his call to make. Corey Tent Boom, Holocaust survivor, once wrote this, and I think it speaks profoundly to this choice that Philemon has. Corey Tent Boom once wrote, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover the prisoner was you. Philemon has a choice to make. And in that choice, he will either demonstrate that he has been set free by the gospel or he will reveal that he's the one who's really in bondage, not Onesimus. What about us? What choice are we making? We believe the gospel. In Christ, crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. We're going to come up in a moment, and that is what this sacrament is all about. We believe in Christ, crucified for the forgiveness of our sins and his resurrection from the dead. But beloved, are we free? I asked it last week. I'm going to ask it a lot more. Are we free? Because if we only love and confess a Jesus who forgives our sin, but doesn't free us to forgive those who sin against us, then we don't know Jesus. Then we don't know Jesus. We can never experience the fullness of the gospel. We can never experience the fullness of the gospel of God's forgiveness in Christ until we extend, we share, we practice that forgiveness in our lives. 
But there are qualifications, we argue. Some of you are very well-versed in your Bible. You probably have it open. You've been waiting the whole time. You might have even underlined it or highlighted it. This is about two Christians being reconciled to each other. This doesn't apply to people outside the faith. So all those people who don't believe in Jesus, I can still be resentful at them. I can still keep my grudges for them until they come to the Lord, of course. And I want to tell you right now, I'll become clean. You're absolutely right. In the context of this letter, it is about two Christians being reconciled to each other. But my friends, this isn't the whole of Scripture. And the broader context of Scripture, what I will call the Jesus principle, which trumps the Paul letter, is what we learn to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Man, I like you would love it if that line had been, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and also believe in you. But that's not what Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive those who sin against us as you have forgiven us, Lord. <laughs> but, but what about the exceptions, man? What about the exceptions? I'm with you. I know where you're coming from. What about the exceptions? What if the other person isn't admitting they're wrong? What if they aren't even asking for forgiveness? How can we be reconciled to that person? Why should we be reconciled to that person? As to how we can be reconciled to someone who isn't even asking for forgiveness, we can be reconciled to them in terms of God. That person may not want to talk to you. That person may not be, you may not be able to talk to them, see them. They may not even own up what, they, what, what they've done. But you understand in every relationship, we understand there's a third person that we often ignore or neglect, and that's Jesus. And you can be reconciled to anyone through Christ. And here's the thing. When you allow yourself to be reconciled to that person with Jesus, even if they won't talk to you or admit what they've done, this is what's so profound. You actually will get out of the way for what God is trying to do in the life of that person. Because when you've gotten your stuff right with the Lord and you've done everything that God has asked of you and God has met you, then you leave that person to God. But when you still hang on to that grudge, that payback, you are an obstacle to the work that God is trying to do. How can we be reconciled? To another person who doesn't even admit they're wrong, we can be reconciled to them in our relationship with Christ. But why? 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 Why should we be reconciled? I mean, if they're not even saying they did something wrong, if they're not even asking for forgiveness, why should we be reconciled with them? That just doesn't feel right. Why? Because Jesus' forgiveness of us was not conditional. Jesus' forgiveness of us was not conditional. While we were still sinners, Christ died. Jesus forgave us. Our story would be different if we could sit here today and say, you know, what we celebrate on Good Friday is all those good people who said, Lord, we're so sorry. We're so sorry for what we've done. We, we recognize what you're doing here. Lord, we believe in you. That's not our story. Good Friday is the story of all of us basically saying, string him up. Crucify him. He's the problem, not us. Kill him. And it's in that context, not when we're asking for forgiveness, not even when we're admitting we've done anything wrong, that Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Why? Because while we were still yet sinners, Christ died. Jesus forgave us. <laughs> Guys, this is hard to say because I don't want you to hear this wrong. Church attendance is great. It's so good you're here today. 
It's good you're here every week. Bible study is wonderful. I want to encourage you to read and know the Bible. Serving others is good. The work that we do, serving others, meeting needs is, is important. Prayer every day is vital. Experiencing the sacraments, baptism, which we just celebrated, communion, so important, so vital. But guys, the most visible evidence, the most crucial reflection of our relationship with Jesus is how we are being changed in how we relate to each other. If you want to share your faith, and many of you I know want to share your faith, you don't know how to share your faith, what to say. If you want to let others know about your belief in Jesus, and a lot of us get hot and bothered because we think we live in a world where the world is hostile to our faith in Jesus. If you want to share your faith, if you want to share your belief in Jesus with others, we have been empowered to share our faith, to point to our belief in Jesus in the most profound and transformational way, and yet we do not practice it. If you want to share your faith in Jesus, if you want others to know you believe in Jesus, you follow him, then practice forgiveness in your relationships. Practice forgiveness in your relationships openly, visibly, and without strings. Your spouse who doesn't believe as you do, you will turn their head 360 by practicing forgiveness. Your child, who you're not happy with how they're living, with what they're doing, you will turn them around, even if it's for a moment, by forgiveness. Your neighbor, who offends you, alienates you, who you feel is you know, antagonistic towards you, you will suddenly provoke by practicing forgiveness. You know, we say in the church that love is the thing, and it is. Love is the mark. Love is the rubric of our life in Christ. But if you want to get... Hands-on, tangible, forgiveness is the most powerful manifestation of our love. The love we experience from Christ, the love we wish to share in the name of Jesus is most powerfully seen and felt when we practice forgiveness. The most radical transformations occur in our relationships. The most compelling witness of the gospel is provided when we forgive others as we have been forgiven by God. And more than this, if that's not enough, Paul writes in another letter one way to see ourselves is as ambassadors for Christ. And when he, Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ, he doesn't give us a huge job description, right? What he says is we're ambassadors for Christ. And how do you sum up our ministry? What are we supposed to be about? How are we supposed to share the gospel, reflect Jesus to others? Paul says as an ambassadors to Christ, your ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. That means... The real, down and dirty, practical work of sorting out the issues between us so they don't divide us. And yet, beloved, look at what we look like. Within the church, we're more divided than we are united. Within churches, we're more divided than we're united. We're living so counter to the very gospel message we say we believe in. Can we forgive each other in the midst of our differences? Can we accept each other in the midst of our differences? Can we restore each other to the family in the midst of our differences? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Forgiveness is not easy. But holding on to resentment is a bitter pill to keep swallowing. Being reconciled to each other and restoring fellowship may be the most painful ministry we engage in, which is probably why we do all kinds of other ministries. 
I'd rather pass out bulletins. I'd rather preach a sermon than have to deal with your junk. And you have to deal with mine than having the awkward conversation of knowing that I've hurt you or telling you you've hurt me. Being reconciled to each other and restoring fellowship may be the most painful ministry we engage in, but it is the heart of the gospel. Don't leave today. Don't leave today and say, if someone asks you, like they might, what'd you hear today in church? Well, Pastor Chris said, I gotta forgive other people so that I'm the bigger person. <laughs> no! No, no, no! Because <laughs> that's what we often do. We say, you know, we say this to our kids. Well, you should say sorry. You should, be for, you should forgive so you're the bigger person. No! Forgiveness, forgiving someone is not about being the bigger person. Forgiving someone is about being Christ to that person. Hear that. Forgiving someone is being Christ to that person. It's mirroring exactly what Jesus did in the last place you'd ever expect to find it under the most reprehensible conditions possible where no one was being apologetic, but people were acting like absolute lunatics, savages. Christ forgave us. And so in the absolute most extreme condition, when someone has wronged you, hurt you, they won't even acknowledge it. You're hurting and everyone else around you is like, you know what? You gotta get them back. You know what? You're gonna make them pay. They're gonna get theirs to stand up and say, no, I love you. I forgive you. You have just become Jesus. You have just become Jesus. The kingdom of God has come in the midst of that moment. Forgiveness is the real demonstration of the power of the gospel because it's the work Christ has done for each one of us. And we can only experience its freedom when we extend it to each other. And there's no time, better time to begin than right now. Right now. Oh, I heard you. I heard some of you. Yep, pull this card out. All this time talking about this, you got to have one name. You got to have at least one name. Write that name down. And in your head, you're like, I don't need to write a name. I don't need to, I don't need to write a name down. The power of naming it. You don't write it down, you'll forget it in an hour and it's gone. You write it down, it's there looking back at you. I want to invite you to start by writing down a name. Because we see, we can't, we can't leave this morning, and I know I'm going long, I don't care anymore. I don't. Because this is one of those messages that we can't just hear and file away for later. Forgiveness takes time. Please don't think this is rushed. Forgiveness takes time, but it's not something that we can put off, and so we have to begin now. And so I'm going to ask you to write a name on this card. And now I'm going to ask you, and I'm not going to look at you, so if you don't do it, it's not a problem. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes because maybe you, before you closed your eyes, that card was still blank. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes because maybe that card isn't blank and you need to see the face of the person. You need to actually see their face. Because oftentimes, we see them differently. As you're thinking about that person, as your eyes are closed, as you're picturing that person, I want to invite you to just start by allowing God to
to let you see that person the way he sees them. And if you've taken this step, and there's a lot of courage in this, I invite you to silently pray this prayer with me. Father, I want to open my eyes, but it's time to forgive. Thank you for forgiving us. I see a face in front of me, and I see a cross behind it. Thank you for forgiving us. Help, help us. Help us to forgive those who have wronged us. Oh, man, Father, we lift before you today old wounds that still bleed, deep scars that still ache. In our mind's eye, we're seeing faces of people right now that we may not want to forgive. But okay, we get it. We know we need to. There are names that we don't want to write down on this card. Maybe there's a name that we've already written down and we just, they're names of people who aren't even asking to be forgiven. They haven't owned up to what they've done, what they're doing. We don't feel like forgiving them but we know we need to be free of their power over us. Father, we ask you to set us free. We ask you to help us to forgive as you have forgiven us. Lord, as we come to the table in just a few moments, Lord, help us to be mindful in a way that we never have before. Strike us at the heart in a way we never have before that you have forgiven us. Not, the, not even just the sins that we call to mind, but not even the, even the sins that we're not even willing to own up to yet. You've forgiven us, Lord. So, Lord, out of that place of forgiveness where our thoughts are muddled in pain and bitterness, change our thinking. Release our minds from bad thoughts so that we can love those who have wronged us. Where we can only see an enemy or a stranger, enable us to accept and recognize a brother or sister in grace like us to welcome them as we would welcome you. Change our hearts, O oh God. Make us ever true. Lord, we don't just pray for ourselves, we pray for each other. Pray for each other. We may have different names, different faces, but we are all struggling right now in the same way. And so we pray for each other. We pray that every single person here would experience the freedom of your forgiveness so that we would extend that same freedom to others. We ask this in the only power that can make this possible, the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the only name that makes this more than sorry, but makes it forgiveness. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen.